0: In 2018, marriage rates hit an all-time low in the U.S. On top of this, divorce rates maintained around the 40 to 50% range. And while we don't know all the factors that contributed to these low marriage rates and high divorce rates, what I think we can say from the data here is that the trajectory of marriage, in general, is slowly working its way towards extinction. In our country. No doubt that as society continues to try and redefine marriage as something other than what God ordained it to be, we will continue to see its demise until it means nothing at all. So, as Christians living in a world where marriage is on the decline and where it is constantly being redefined, what is true biblical? marriage. How should we think about marriage in a world that values it so little? If we are not careful to give biblical thought to marriage, we risk allowing the world to set the standard for what marriage is rather than the Bible. So this brings us to our passage today, Mark chapter 10 verses 1 through 12. And as we look at this passage, we learn something about marriage and what God intended for it to be. So please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles to Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And please follow along as I read our passage this morning. Mark 10. He set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again. And as was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test Jesus, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and to send her away. But Jesus told them, He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. As we come back to Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1, we find that Jesus is switching regions and audiences. We remember that Jesus took some time away from the masses to directly teach his 12 disciples, and to invest in them from the end of chapter 8 to here in chapter 10. But now Jesus resumes his preaching and teaching to the public crowds once more. So as he comes into the region of Judea, the crowds converge on him, and Jesus teaches all of them. It is in this setting that we find once more the Pharisees, and we remember that the Pharisees were the religious elite. They were the teachers of the law. They knew it inside and out. And we also remember that the Pharisees hate Jesus. They despise him. And ever since Mark chapter 3, verse 6, they've been conspiring with their political enemies, the Herodians, to find a way to get him killed. They want Jesus dead and they want him gone. So here again, we find them trying to trap Jesus, trying to find some way to get Jesus to hang himself with his own words. So this is what is meant by their coming to test him. They want Jesus to alienate himself with the masses and the ruler of the region. So how do they plan to do this? How do they plan to trap Jesus? Their tactic this time around is to ask about the lawfulness of divorce found in verse 2. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This is how they're going to try and do Jesus in with this question. Now we're probably wondering at this point, how does this question of divorce alienate Jesus with anyone? How, is, how are they going to trap him with it? And I think it has potential to alienate Jesus with people in at least a couple ways. But in order to understand this, we have to remember what's taken place recently in Mark. Going back to chapter 6, we remember that John the Baptist confronted King Herod and ended up being imprisoned by him due to this confrontation. What did John the Baptist confront Herod about? Well... He was imprisoned for confronting Herod about his unlawful divorce and remarriage. We remember that Herod, desiring his brother's wife Herodias, divorces his wife so that he can be with her. And then Herodias divorces his brother's wife so that she can be with Herod. Now it was clear in Jewish law that this was forbidden. It was a Moral outrage for someone, especially a Jewish king of all things, to, div- to take their brother's wife to be their own while that brother is still alive. Leviticus 18 and 20 was very clear about this. So John, in a courageous move, calls out this Jewish king on his clear breaking of the law. He was not supposed to do this. He was supposed to serve and represent Israel before God, and yet here he is committing these horrible abominations in the sight of God. So John confronts Herod about his unlawful divorce and remarriage, and he ends up being executed in the end for it. No doubt the Pharisees and others are aware of these proceedings. So now that Jesus enters Jewish territory once more here, specifically where John the Baptist had ministered in Herod's territory of all places, perhaps the Pharisees are thinking that they can get Jesus in trouble if he espouses similar views as John did on this very topic. Maybe they can get Jesus to publicly condemn Herod. So the Pharisees seek to put Jesus on public record before everyone about what he believes about this potentially dangerous topic and have maybe Herod do him in for them. But then, to a lesser degree, I think the Pharisees asked this question so that he might alienate himself with some of the people by having to pick a side on the issue of divorce and remarriage. I think we understand this, but if you say you're a Democrat, you maybe alienate yourself with some Republicans. If you say you're a Republican, you might alienate yourself with some Democrats, and vice versa. They want him to pick a side and to kind of get his popularity away from that. They want him to be divisive. So what were the common views of divorce during this period? And there were at least two different views at the time. There was the majority view that was prevalent across most of Judea, and then there was the minority view. The majority view on divorce believed that the husband, for practically any reason at all, could divorce his wife. And then, on the other hand, there was the minority position that said a man could divorce his wife only on the grounds of sexual immorality. But again, this was the minority position, it was a small position. So this prevailing view, this majority view, was that a man could divorce his wife for anything at all. So if she made a bad meal, divorce. If she started to look fat or didn't look as good as she should, divorce. A prospective wife comes along, a better one. could divorce your wife to marry that woman. Any reason at all, you could divorce for it. Even well-known Jewish historian Josephus, who is writing at this time, recounts his own life in divorce as he writes, At this time, I divorced my wife, not liking her behavior. This example conveys the prevailing attitude and sentiment about marriage at large within this region. So as they bring this question to Jesus, what would he say? Would he be trapped by their question? Would he side with one or the other on this issue of divorce and remarriage? Jesus doesn't immediately give us an answer, does he? He doesn't give his position on the matter immediately. Instead, he responds to their tricky question with a question of his own. What did Moses say? command you? What did Moses command you on this matter? And the Pharisees respond saying, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and to send her away. Now before we go any further, what are the Pharisees talking about? What are they referencing? Where did Moses permit the people of Israel to write divorce papers and to send their wife away? the text the Pharisees are referencing is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And here, in this passage, these four verses, we find Moses describing a hypothetical situation that might come to exist in Israel. If these issues came up, here's how to handle them. And my guess is that many of us here this morning are not familiar with this passage. But it was the key text, that the Pharisees would often reference for the right to divorce their spouse. So because we're not familiar with it, let's go ahead and look at these four verses. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, and I'll read this here. If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and a pause here, and what this indecency was was the topic of much debate. This was the contention in all of their debates. But whatever it was, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. If after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her, writes her a divorce certificate, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house, or if he dies, the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled, because that would be detestable to the Lord. You must not bring guilt on the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. What is clear as we look at these verses is that Moses permits divorce for the people of Israel. But the important question is, why? Why does Moses permit divorce in these specific scenarios? If we look at the text, we come to find that this permission was granted, was given to mitigate the damages done from divorce and the messy situation at hand. It was to make less worse the situation that was already really bad. So how did it do that? How did it mitigate these damages, and I think it did it in at least two ways. First, the steps of writing a letter of divorce protected a woman from their husbands slandering them falsely. The formal process of divorce by letter would serve as proof of divorce and protect the woman from the deadly charge of adultery afterwards if she were to marry another man. It protected The woman, if this sad event were to occur. Second, this command prevented men from pimping out their wives. This prevented men from using their wives as bargaining chips or divorcing them simply to have a brief affair and then get back together with them. All in all, these regulations made men who had the primary power at the time Seriously, consider their divorce before initiating it. Because once followed through on, there was never, ever a chance for them to go back to that wife. They couldn't do it. So as we look at these laws put in place by Moses, we learn several things. The laws were there to regulate an already bad situation. Notice, Moses isn't commanding anyone to get a divorce. He isn't recommending it in the slightest. He's describing a worst case scenario. If this happened, then make sure this happens to protect the woman. Second, these laws were there to discourage divorce and protect the more vulnerable party, which was the woman. God in his grace knew the sinfulness of man. He knew of their brokenness. And so he put further merciful laws in place to help mitigate the sinful nature and tendency of man. And then third, we should notice this passage is more about what a man can't do if he were to get divorced. It isn't about whether or not a man can get divorced. That's not Moses' point. His point and focus is directed towards what he can't do if he does get divorced. He can't go back to his first wife. So as we come back to the text at hand here in Mark, we find that the Jewish culture at large didn't see the purpose behind the commandments. They treated this text as permission to do what they wanted when it came to divorce. Look, if I want to pursue divorce, great. I have grounds to do so. Look here. But Jesus helps his audience And us see that the real reason these commandments were given ultimately came down to what? The hardness of the human heart. As Jesus says in verse 5, he, Moses, wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. In other words, this passage was never meant to be used to justify encourage, or excuse divorce. It was there to mitigate the damages and to help bring healing to a broken circumstance. As one commentator puts helpfully, the legal provision of Moses in Deuteronomy 24 was not intended as a statement of God's purpose for marriage, but as a regrettable but necessary means of limiting the damage when that purpose marriage had already been abandoned. It is a provision to deal with human hardness of heart, not a pointer to the way things ought to be. So the Jews took this concession that would repair a broken circumstance, and then they twisted it. What was supposed to be a means of mercy and healing became a tool for the further Destruction of marriages across the board. It became weaponized to excuse divorce as no big deal at all. They twisted and they abused God's merciful commandment. They abused his grace. And as we've looked at this primary passage that the Jews and Pharisees would use to excuse divorce for practically any reason, we find their interpretation to be greatly misguided. They thought this passage meant that God and Moses were cool with divorce. It's all right, whatever. Rather than seeing the passage as a concession to the brokenness of man. So Jesus corrects their view and their interpretation of this passage. He helps them see the real purpose behind this commandment. And then he directs everyone to where they should be really looking concerning marriage and divorce in the scriptures. And contrary to popular belief at large, they shouldn't have been looking to Deuteronomy 24. They should not have been looking at this passage as the primary one to govern marriage and divorce. Where they should have been looking is where Jesus takes them next. Genesis one and two, the origin of man. So Jesus continues his train of thought in verse 6, saying, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus goes to the creation narrative to help his audience understand God's purpose for marriage. He reminds them that when two are joined together in marriage, they become one. They are unified as one through marriage, and this new bond is so strong that they leave their own families to form this new unit. Because of this, Jesus concludes authoritatively, Therefore, What God has joined together, let no one separate. Let no one separate. This is Jesus' answer to the Pharisees' question on divorce. This is his answer. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to be trapped by their question on divorce and to take a side, but instead Jesus redirects their conversation to the importance and value of marriage and says, This is how we should be oriented. God never intended for divorce to happen in the beginning. So orient yourselves towards keeping marriage together. Stop looking for these loopholes in marriage because God never intended for that to happen. Jesus, in the end here, delivers a strong and clear rebuke to a society and culture that was largely oriented towards divorce as a means of convenience. Now the disciples were struggling to understand Jesus on this matter. They were struggling. They wondered if Jesus really meant what he just said. Does he really mean let no one ever separate? Is there never divorce? So they come back to Jesus at the home and they say, help us explain what you just said. Did you really just mean what you just said? And Jesus basically says, yes. Yes, I did. In fact, verse 11, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now what Jesus says here is significant for at least a couple of reasons. Number one, Jesus' statement here speaks to the intrinsic value and quality of woman. we are probably wondering, how does it do that here? We have to first understand that in the Jewish world, it was never said that a man could commit adultery against his own wife. The woman could commit adultery against her husband and another person's husband, but the idea of a man committing adultery against his own wife was completely foreign. It could be said that a man... Could commit adultery against another wife's husband, or a man could commit adultery against that woman's father. But again, the adultery he committed was never against the woman herself. The sin of adultery was always, always in terms of being against the man or the other man. So when Jesus says the man commits adultery against his own wife, we understand him to be once more radically countercultural. It's something we take for granted now in our era, but Jesus was clearly elevating the status and value of women across the board. He was treating them as equals with men. They were people made in the image of God that could be sinned against just like any other, and this was serious. Second, Jesus' statement here emphasizes the importance and permanency of marriage. It emphasizes the importance and permanency intended for marriage. We remember that Jesus is speaking to what kind of culture? A a culture that largely devalued marriage through any cause, divorce. And in rebuttal to this loose view of marriage, Jesus says those who would practice this type of sinful divorce and marry another is in reality committing adultery, against their former spouse. Make no mistake. This type of divorce that was practiced is uh, an adulterous violation to God's will. That's what he's saying. And Jesus' words here are meant to shock us and help us see the importance of marriage and God's intention of it to be permanent. Now perhaps we're wondering does this mean all divorce and all remarriage always results in adultery? It kind of seems like it based upon what Jesus is saying here, right? Is that what Jesus is saying? However, Matthew, in the same event, records Jesus giving a certain exception to this general rule. And Paul also records another exception in 1 Corinthians. And to be completely honest with you, on this topic of whether or not there are exceptions allowed in divorce and remarriage has been a messy debate through all of Christian church history. And there are godly men who love Jesus deeply, but they disagree about what constitutes legitimate divorce and remarriage and what doesn't. But as far as these matters go, as far as these exceptions go elsewhere in the Bible, Mark doesn't care to put Jesus on record for any of these nuances, for any of these exceptions, like Matthew does. He doesn't give us answers to these questions that we might have burning on the back of our mind. Why? Because Mark's only concern for us here this morning is that we know Jesus's general stance toward the matter of divorce and remarriage. He wants us to Feel the full force of his statement, which is radically countercultural. Mark wants us to know that God's intention for marriage was for it to be permanent. And to violate it is serious. And that's what we should feel and come away with as we read his word to us. We should come away seeing that God prizes and he values our marriage. And so should we, no matter where we are. In life. This is the main driving point. So as for the questions we might have concerning divorce and remarriage, we understand that this specific text isn't meant to explain every and all situations. We need the wisdom of Solomon to navigate this broken world that we live in. We need to study the Bible for all it's worth, to see what it says on divorce and remarriage. And as people committed to God's word, may we do that together. And as we do, no doubt, we may have some disagreement about this matter. But may we have humility and grace to humbly disagree as godly Christians have on this complex issue for centuries. So if you do, have questions about these matters. No, Aaron and I are more than willing to talk about it with you. We'd be happy to discuss this very complex, messy situation. But for all intents and purposes, Mark doesn't want us to focus there. He wants us to focus on the permanency intended by God for marriage. So, as we've looked at this passage concerning divorce and remarriage, how should all of us here this morning respond? Where does the rubber meet the road? How should we respond? For those of us this morning who may have already been divorced and remarried and maybe even still struggling under the guilt of a past divorce and or remarriage, I encourage you this morning. I encourage you to reflect on this heaviness of the sin and to let, you, let it drive you all the more into the love and grace of Jesus. Yes, our sins are great, but his grace is all the more deep. For his grace is more than sufficient to cover all of our sins, no matter how grave they might be. Christ's blood washes us white as snow, so revel in his love for you. Repent of the past sins and find full forgiveness in Jesus Christ. For those of us this morning who are married and maybe are struggling in our marriages, I encourage you to respond by reflecting on God's value and care about your marriage. Jesus' word here is meant to drive us to see the importance and value of our marriage union to one another. What God has joined together, let no one separate. So value and prize your marriage. Don't neglect or let your marriages slide by the wayside. Husbands and wives, love and respect your spouse, seeing them as a good gift from God. Cherish and care for them as your own body, for you are one. We want to be the kind of church that places a high value on marriage because Jesus, because God cares about it. So if and when we do face conflict that we can't resolve in our marriages, may we be willing to humbly receive help and aid from others who have gone before us. For our marriages are significant and valuable in the sight of God. Lest we forget, marriage is significant because it pictures Christ's love for the church and the church's submission to Christ. And when this is not in order, we taint our witness to the watching world and may even discourage others from following Jesus. So may we fight and struggle for our marriages to rightly reflect Christ's love for the church and so reflect his greatness and his wisdom. For those of us here this morning that are unmarried, whether you're a widow, single, or a child, know that we have the responsibility to encourage others that are married within the assembly. This is especially true as we live in a society that speaks disparagingly of marriage and often makes fun of it. But God's people are to be different. We are to be different. We are to esteem this wonderful gift to us and show the world his wisdom and beauty through marriage. So encourage and pray for the marriages in the church as part of the family of God. And again, I want to say this includes children too. Children, encourage your parents in their marriage. Pray for them that God would strengthen them.